finished up uh, chapter 11 last week. And if you remember there, in chapter 11, the question comes from John the Baptist. Are you the coming one or do we wait for another? And it was really John's low point of, of saying, are you who I've told everyone about? Are you really the Messiah? Or was I wrong about everything? And, and Jesus sends word uh, back to John saying that the blind see, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, lepers are cleansed, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And, and I believe that he was kind of letting John know, I'm doing exactly what I've come to do, even if it wasn't what John was hoping he was going to do, right? And, and that was the case with a lot of people, that they believed the, the Messiah was going to come and do something specific. And when Jesus didn't do that, they were disappointed or they decided that he wasn't. Um, but John gets the reassurance that, man, I'm doing exactly what the scriptures have prophesied about. And then he goes on to talk about John and let people know that there's never been one who has lived greater than John the Baptist, which must have been shocking to everybody who heard that. But he goes on to say that anybody, even the least in the kingdom of heaven, is greater than John the Baptist. And that's pointing towards us, right? Not because we're anything special, not because we're great, but because of the work of Jesus Christ, we are children of the new covenant. While John the Baptist was amazing, he was born and died under the old covenant. His message was fantastic, but because of the work of Jesus Christ, we have a greater message. We have a a greater closeness to the Lord than, than even John the Baptist. And Jesus goes on, again, it could sound like he's jumping from topic to topic there in chapter 11, but it's all bringing the people to this one point, because he starts to talk about the miracles that were done in the, in the different cities that he... Do you want your highlighter? No. <laughs> Thank you. You just... <laughs> Everyone's watching the highlighter roll down the floor. Should we do anything? Uh, I should have just grabbed it and handed it to you. That would have been the nice thing instead of drawing all that attention to you. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, anyhow, Jesus goes on to talk about the cities that he's uh, done these miracles in and said, look, if, the, if, I, if any of those miracles or even one of those miracles had, had happened in cities like Tyre or even Sodom, they would, Sodom would remain until this day. They would have repented. But all, with all the, the people had seen, they still kind of went, well, I don't know. It's that same idea of, I don't know if Jesus is really the Messiah. He's not the Messiah I wanted, Right? And so he's explaining, he's showing that they don't really get a vote in who he is. That he's the only one that can reveal the reality of who he is and the reality of who the Father is. He's the only one that can do it. And that they who consider themselves wise and prudent and and keeping Jesus at a distance are really being fools and time will prove that. At the end of chapter 11, he makes a statement that is is so important. Again, speaking of all these people and all the things that he's done and how they're not receiving it, that that their wisdom and their prudence is is like a heavy burden that they they carry and bear with them. 
He says, come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And, And so there's this invitation. Even after all that, after rebuking the cities and talking about those that are keeping, you know, Jesus at a distance, saying, look, you can be free of all of those burdens. And, and we talked about that a lot last week. The, we, there are burdens that we put upon ourselves, and there are burdens we allow others to heap upon us. And those are both addressed in what Jesus says here. But his burden, his yoke, is not heavy. And so if we bear a heavy burden, it's not from him. Now in chapter 12, we see... Uh, an example, probably at that time in Israel, the greatest weight, the greatest burden that had been set upon the people. And there are plenty of parallels to uh, some of the, the similar weights we choose to carry uh, today. And, and it was the religious leaders who had put this upon the people, misunderstanding, I think, to some degree, but also seeing their control of the situation being just that, control and power. And so Jesus is going to confront this situation, this, this weight and burden. So let's pray. God, we thank you that you desire to teach us. You want to speak to us. You want to change us. And Lord, we have come today because we want to be changed. So we, we submit ourselves to you. We pray that your word would be planted in our hearts and bear good fruit. That you give us ears to hear and that you keep us from distraction. And uh, again, we commit ourselves in this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did When he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests of the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. There's some really intense statements that Jesus makes there. And, and for us, again, not growing up in a Hebrew culture and the law and all those things, uh, they don't quite impact us the same way. But these were things that would have left people just shocked and gasping when Jesus said them. Uh, and there's some very clear things that he points to of who he is. Uh, we see again that the Pharisees are just watching Jesus. They've just got him like under a, the magnifying glass, right, to any little thing he does or anything that his disciples do. They're just looking for something to pick at. And, and here, the disciples are walking through this grain field, and they pluck a couple of heads of grain, and, and they eat it, you know, and it's a, it, because... We don't have grain fields around here, but what you do is you, you pluck them and then you kind of roll them in your hands and that breaks away the husk. And you, you blow, blow on them and it blows the husk away and it leaves the grain behind and you can chew on it, right? That's all they're doing. And it's super common, you know, people would, would uh, do this for a snack or whatever all the time. 
But these guys, these Pharisees see this, and they just freak out. And it's interesting because they don't confront the disciples about what they're doing. They attack Jesus about what his disciples are doing. And the idea is, how dare you allow this? Look at what they're doing, right? And they're not upset that grain is being plucked, right? Because you could think that, that, well, they don't know who owns this field. They didn't ask for permission, and they're stealing grain. Well, that's not it at all. In fact, the Lord had laid out something very cool in the Old Testament. Uh, in fact, it was a command that whoever was growing, far, whatever farmers, or if they had orchards or vineyards or whatever, it didn't matter, that uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, the Lord commands them to give the outer rows to the poor and to the traveler. That Israel purposely, God had designed that there was no welfare system. Instead, there was this. And so anybody traveling in a different town or country or part of the country, anybody who was poor and couldn't provide for themselves, could go and go to the gleaning rows uh, on the outside of the field or the trees on the outside of an orchard or the vines on the outside of a vineyard. And they could pluck basically enough for a meal. And they'd be provided for. Even in harvest time, they were, God had told them not to take everything from the field, but leave some behind for the poor, right? So it isn't that the Pharisees see this and they're stealing grain. That's not it at all. It's not the fact that they're taking grain. It's the, that it's the Sabbath. The fourth commandment, that we are to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Um, and it, it's a great commandment. It's a great blessing that the Sabbath day is to be a day that's set apart. It's different. It's meant to be a blessing. And God laid it out that not only was it for the individual, but it was for everyone in your house. So if you had servants or you had guests or you had people visiting from another country, no one was allowed to work on that day. It's meant to be a blessing. It's meant to actually also bring equality. Even your servants, your employees, they weren't allowed to work. And everyone would take a day to rest and a day of joy and a day to, to focus and think on the things of the Lord um, and to be thankful. That, that was the purpose of the Sabbath. But uh, we as human beings have this amazing ability to take something good and overcomplicate it right? Something simple, something beautiful, and we just complicate it to death, right? Well, that's exactly what the religious leaders did, is they started going, well, okay, what is it to labor? What is it to work? How much can you do and it still not be work? And, and literally, they went through all these things to say, well, this is how far a person can walk. This is how much you can lift. This is, these are the things you can do and you can't do on the Sabbath day. And so they tried to define uh, not only the Sabbath. In fact, when it came to the Ten Commandments and to the law that God had already laid out, by the time that Jesus was on the scene, they had written 300 books to clarify God's law, which was just complicating it, making it harder, making it, taking it from being a blessing to a burden to bear. And, and that was definitely the case with the Sabbath, is that it had become a burden. And, and, and really, legalism will always be a burden. It, it, it gives you the, 
the guise that it's going to somehow set you free, that it's going to somehow make things easier because you're going to have this, this certain guideline to go by. Did it, did it stop? <laughs> you be in charge of that. Thank you, Erica. <laughs> we, I know that we've got people watching on Facebook, so if it dies, it's, they're out of luck. <laughs> Except for Erica, save the day. So, um, the, the Sabbath was meant to be such a beautiful thing, and instead, it had just become this law. And like I said, legalism's like that. It just it becomes a huge burden to bear. Now, there's always the question that comes up. Well, I mean, aren't we supposed to have certain uh, guidelines that we go by and, and things that we choose, the things that are just on our heart or that we believe this is what I'm going to do to honor the Lord? Absolutely. Everybody needs that. We need to raise our children with those guidelines. We certainly look to the Word of God to, to know what is right and wrong, and then we have our own personal, I think this is what's best for me and my family, right? When it turns from those guidelines into legalism is when it isn't just what I should do. It's what you should do too. And it's what I see as the source of my righteousness. That because I keep this rule and you don't, I'm a few points ahead of you. And that's what the Sabbath had become. What it meant to be this beautiful blessing was held over the people how they weren't ever quite keeping it good enough. And, and really, um, the mantra of the legalist is, I would never, I would never do that. They're defined by what they don't do. And, and that's what these guys are doing. They're, they're pointing to Jesus going, how could you allow your disciples? I would never violate the Sabbath but you're allowing them to, right? And what they're upset about is that what they're doing, this simple little thing of picking grain and, and rolling it in their hand, and it's harvesting, right? They pick it. It's winnow, or it's uh, threshing because they break the husk off. It's winnowing because they blow it away. And it's preparing a meal. All rules that they've come up with about how you can't break the Sabbath. So four major things, and they're like, oh, Obviously, this guy can't be the Messiah. Look what he allows his people to do. Now, Jesus never broke the Sabbath law or any other laws. To do so is sin. So he, he was without sin. He never broke any laws. But he broke man's law about it often. Right? It's all the stuff they heaped upon it. It's all, well, you can't do this and you can't do that. And Jesus is like, oh, yes, I can and, and I love that about the Lord because he could, have, he could have avoided a lot of conflict. He could have waited to heal people the day after the Sabbath. He could have showed up early and healed them the day before. But instead he chose, hey, it's the Sabbath. I'm healing people today. <laughs> and I love that about the Lord because he's not afraid of dealing with the conflict. And I... Again, even look at this. It, it would have been easy for him to address this one issue. And, and look to the Pharisees and go, hey, guys, look, come on, let's talk about this. This isn't really harvesting, right? This isn't really, you know, but he doesn't. Instead, he points him to three different things. And, and I think these, all three of them blew their minds. 
The first thing he points to is King David before he was king in 1 Samuel chapter 21. In verse 4 he says, How he entered the house of God, and he ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor those who were with him, but only for the priests. Now the story there in 1 Samuel chapter 21 is King Saul is trying to kill David again. David runs, and uh, as he's, he has to leave very quickly, so he doesn't have time to get food or anything, and he's got a long journey ahead of him. And so he goes to the temple, and he goes to the priest and says, do you have any food here? And the priest says, no, I, the only food we have is the show bread. Well, that's the bread that they would take, and they put there uh, as an offering to the Lord. And at the end of the day, they'd take it, and it was available to the priests to eat, right? And, and David goes, well, if that's all you've got, I, me and my men, we need food. And the priest goes, you're right, you do. And he gives it to him, and David's on his way, right? And so Jesus points to this going, look, this is breaking a law. This is breaking a rule. And it's one not made up by men. It's one that God has laid out as far as like only the priests were supposed to eat the food. But yet it was okay. Why is that? And that's where I think their mind was blown. Not that they hadn't heard this story before. They knew it. But Jesus goes, look, David ate the bread. And so did the guys who were with him, which were some pretty rough guys. And and he goes, and it was okay. Why is that? And I'm thinking they're like, ah, oh, oh, blah, blah. But you know, just stumped. Well, David understood, and the priest of the temple understood what the priority is. Right? David wasn't just swinging by the temple because it was convenient. He didn't have time to go to the store, so I'll go to the temple and I'll take the priest's food. Right? It wasn't out of any kind of disrespect. It was out of desperate need. And the priest went, yeah. You're the priority. People are the priority. And this is what's been forgotten. It's forgotten then, and unfortunately too often it's still forgotten today. People are the priority. Now the second thing Jesus points to, and I love this one, and I think again this is one that they were like, didn't even know how to respond. In verse 5 he says, Or have you not read that in the law, that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless. And again, he doesn't offer an answer. He's like, you ever thought about this? And I think they went, never. I have never even thought about that. With all of the hype and all the things about the Sabbath, and we won't do this and we won't do that, they hadn't considered that every Sabbath is a work day for the priest. In fact, it's the biggest work day. There was stuff in the temple all week long. The temple was never closed. And the priests were in the temple constantly. But the Sabbath was a day of sacrifice and of worship, and it was, it was a work day. But they're blameless. They're working on the Sabbath, and it was a lot of work. I mean, sacrificing animals and lifting them up on and all of this stuff. It's hard work. But they're blameless. And, and this is a discussion. I've actually had this discussion with a couple people over the years. I remember one guy, man, he was set. The Sabbath day is Saturday. Churches should meet on Saturday. That's the Lord's day. And I went, you know what? You could pick any day you want. It's a work day for me. Sunday's the biggest day. You know, you want to meet on Saturday? I'm still teaching. If, if that's when you want to do it, it's a work day. And he went, I never thought about that. <laughs> and just to address that real quick, um, Jesus rose on a Sunday. 
He rose the first day of the week. The early church met the first day of the week to celebrate his resurrection. We don't meet to rest. We meet to celebrate, right? But if you want to take a day and make that a Sabbath where you are just still and quiet before the Lord, awesome. If that's Sunday to you, I think it's great. I think it is important that we have a Sabbath. And when we don't, we are the ones that miss out. You know, just like anything else that God has laid out for us to do, whether that's tithing or whether that's the Sabbath or whether it's praise and worship or prayer, we can not do those things and he'll still love us. But we miss out on the good things that he has set out for us in our lives. And the Sabbath is a big one of those, you know. And I know plenty of guys that, man, they, they work hard and they've got jobs going and, you know, construction's a, a big one that I know that it's so hard to get caught up. You always feel behind. Um, but I guarantee that a person that says, you know what, I'm going to have a day that's just dedicated to the Lord. Me and my family are going to spend time together. The Lord will bless that. And you're going to get ahead on everything else. I've seen it personally in my own life and in many others. Now, Jesus, the third thing he points to is his authority. And I believe that this is the one, more than the other two, that would have caused them to gasp out loud at what he says. He says, yet I say to you in verse 6, that in this place is one greater than the temple. Again, they'd taken something good, the Sabbath that was meant to bring joy and equality and a, a day focused on the holiness of God. They've made it into a weight to bear. And they're showing, we're going to see this even more as we go on in the chapter, that their priority is that their rules are more important than people. That their rules are more important, in fact, by their actions, what they're doing, they're, they're showing that their rules are more important than the Messiah himself that is standing right before them. Because it is their rules that give them power. And again, that's what legalism does. The rules that I've created give me power. I can lord it over others. I can, I can make myself feel good and I can make you feel bad. And I don't want to give up that power, especially when I can hide it as righteousness or cloak it, as, but it's just really self-righteous. Now, again, this is funny to me because you think about probably from no one else's perspective but Jesus. Here are these guys, mortal men, sinners just like everybody else, trying to explain to Jesus the importance of the Sabbath. And his response is, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And that's a, that's a statement that has so much to it. He's saying, I created the Sabbath. <laughs> I celebrated the first Sabbath after I created the entire universe. I know about the Sabbath, boys. You don't need to explain a thing to me, Right? That he understands not only why it was created, but the effect it's supposed to have upon our lives. And that's not to be a heavy weight and burden. It's meant to be a blessing. He wrote all of the Ten Commandments, including the fourth. But the fact that they've missed the point altogether is what he points to in verse 7, when he says, But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice you would not have condemned the guiltless. 
Now, Jesus has quoted this verse before. It's from Hosea chapter 6, and he uh, quoted it back in chapter 9. And it's an important verse because it, it reveals so much about the character of God himself. And, and even though we've got the Bible, even though we, uh, we, we study it and we understand the character of Jesus to a certain degree, there's still something in us that has this idea that what God really wants is just obedience to rules. He wants more sacrifice. Do more, give more, be more. That's what's going to make God happy. That's why this verse is so important. Because he doesn't desire sacrifice. He desires mercy. And there's two sides to what's being said there in Hosea. That he desires, first of all, to show mercy to us. But then he wants us to be people that show mercy to others. Right? And so, to know what God wants, and a lot of times that's what we're asking, right? What does God want? What does he want from me? What's going to make him happy? What's going to bring him joy? Mercy. Because in mercy, a key component of love is mercy, right? And we've talked a lot about the the fruit of the Spirit is love, and that that that's what sets us apart from, from the world itself. Is love. But mercy is a huge part of that. He doesn't want more sacrifice. And again, like I said, I, I've talked with people that, man, they've grown up in the church, they've studied the Bible. I remember having this one conversation, and when this guy said this, it broke my heart because we were, we were kind of having this thing about, well, what does God want? And what does He want for our families? What does He want for our kids? And He goes, you know what? I just figure. I'd rather err on the side of legalism than, and, and know that I'm pleasing God. And it broke my heart because that verse that Jesus quotes from Hosea says the exact opposite. It doesn't please him. Erring on the side of legalism pleases ourself. And, and that family... And I can think of several others I've seen over that year that have had that same idea of, well, we're just going to have our rules, and we've got our rules that everyone else should keep too. I have watched him one by one self-destruct over the years. Marriages fall apart, kids go astray, everyone just blows off in every direction, and it's heartbreaking. Because legalism will never bring us to a place of honesty before the Lord. It doesn't bring us to humility. It doesn't bring us to true righteousness. It can only create self-righteousness. The idea of pleasing God is right. And and it does break my heart to see people get caught up in legalism because I believe all of them start in the same place of, I want to please God. But it is the wrong road. It goes in completely the wrong direction. He wants us to be those who receive mercy from Him, And then show mercy to others. Now next, Jesus lets them know, or along with us, Jesus lets them know exactly who he is. That the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. This is, without a doubt, he's telling them, he's got full authority. To them, the Sabbath was held up, maybe not as like the greatest rule. They wouldn't say, what's more important you keep the Sabbath than you don't murder people. But it's the one that was easiest for them to hold over others, right? So it's probably got the most press. 
And, uh, and Jesus says, you know what? I, I'm the one that created it all. I'm the Lord over the Sabbath. And if you guys, and, and this is kind of in what he's saying there, that if you guys love the Sabbath as much as you say you do, you'd know who I am. Right? All right, verse 9. It says, now when he departed from there, he went into the synagogue, and behold, there was a man with a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? That they might accuse him. And he said to them, what man is there among you who has one sheep that, is, that falls into a pit on the Sabbath that will not lay hold of him and lift it, at, lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. And then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Jesus goes to the synagogue, and I'm sure he knew it was a trap. Now, so... It's hard to tell what Matthew's saying here in one little respect. That is this the same day? Was this the same Sabbath? And he went into their synagogue, the same people who were accusing him, like they were on their way to church. They're on the disciples' case and Jesus' case about the grain, and they walk in the synagogue, and Jesus goes, let's go. And he just follows them right in, because that's kind of how Matthew explains it. Or it could be a week later, either way. They've got this trap, this idea set up, that inside the synagogue is a man with a withered hand, which means that uh, it was unusable, that it was completely you know, rolled up, crippled against his body, probably he couldn't use it for anything. And uh, they plot this whole thing that they're going to trick Jesus into healing on the Sabbath. But really it shows, again, more about who they are than who he is. Because what are they trying to trick him with? His compassion. Oh, Jesus is going to see that guy. <laughs> and he's going to be drawn to him. He's going to go right to him. We just, just watch, you know. And it shows that Jesus had compassion uh, and, and put value on this man's life. And their question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Uh, their, their plan is to accuse him of something. And really, again, it's accusing him of breaking the fourth commandment, but it's what they've added to it. So one of those laws is that a physician was not allowed to heal people on the Sabbath, which seems ridiculous. Like, your guy breaks his femur, and you're going to go, well, wait till the, tomorrow. It's the Sabbath. You're out of luck, buddy. And they didn't heal like you know doctors do in our day, but... Still, they would have called for a physician, and they say, well, you can't heal or do anything on the Sabbath. So that's what they were pointing to. They weren't talking about miraculous healing because they hadn't ever seen any before Jesus. And, and Jesus just says, who would not pull your sheep out of a pit if you fell into it on the Sabbath? Now, again, you can almost see the guys going, well, yeah, of course. A sheep has a dollar amount to it. it. That's an investment there. If that fell into a pit, you don't want them to get hurt. You're going you're to help them out. And Jesus, knowing that that's what they're thinking about, that a sheep has value, says, a man has more value. And not just a little bit. How much more value, then, is a man? Worth so much more. But you'll go to the work of, and it is, the idea is like falling into a well. It's a lot of work to get an animal out of a pit. It isn't just hopping in and lifting them out. It's like you've got to get ropes and friends and people, and it's a 
It would be work. But you do it on the Sabbath. How much more value is a man? And the question that they ask, he changes it instead of like, well, is, it, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He says, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. I love that. It brings such clarity. So instead of going, oh, okay, is this work? Is that work? How much can I do and it not be work? The question is, is this good? Is this going to be good for me and my family? Is it going to be good for this person? Well, if so, then, then I'm going to do that on the Sabbath. And that's okay, right? It changes it from being a burden to bear to something like, no, I want to do good. I want to please the Lord and do good on the Sabbath, right? And I love how he just changed it. It is. And it's not even a question. He's just, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And with less effort than it would have been to lift that hypothetical sheep out of the hypothetical well, he just says, stretch out your hand, and the guy's healed. Love it. And their response, these guys that are so holy, how they keep the Sabbath with everything, is that they begin to plot how they will destroy him. Again, you see the twisted mindset. The idea that their rule is so important, they'll kill an innocent man over it. Again, because their rule is where they have their power. Verse 15 says, But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there. And a great multitude followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled what is spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not declare, excuse me, he will not quarrel or nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and his name the Gentiles will trust. Jesus knows their plan. And so he withdraws. And this isn't like uh, him running away or hiding or being afraid of what they're going to do. It's that there's a timing to the cross. And it cannot be rushed by man. And so their plot, it it needs to wait. And Jesus has kicked the hornet's nest enough. And so he just backs up a little bit. And though he kind of removes himself from their spotlight, he doesn't remove himself from the people. In fact, a great multitude is following him. And this is one of the few places where it says that Jesus healed them all. There are plenty of places he healed, but them all is a big one. And that he, he heals them and he says, hey, but don't tell anyone about me. <laughs> you know, again, that never worked. But he, he continues to tell people just to kind of keep things quiet. Because, again, there's a timing to the things that he's doing. And there's a timing to the events of how they have to come about. And then Matthew, as he's writing this gospel, and again, you know, I try and think about what did he see at the time? What was he thinking about when these events took place? But then also, as he's writing it, how many of the things that the Holy Spirit was just going, did you realize this at the time, right? And I wonder if this is one of those. As he's writing this Remembering the compassion of Jesus, remembering the love of Jesus with that great multitude that's following him and, and going, man, that's from Isaiah. 
And he quotes the scripture from Isaiah that was pointing to the, the Messiah of how he would be. That, uh, again, not a warrior, not somebody that's coming along to overthrow Rome, but he is there as a servant, serving the people, healing them all, showing compassion on them, meeting the people in their brokenness, and not just, not just Israel. This is one of the ones that points to the Gentiles as well, that, that the Gentiles will trust in his name. Verse 19 is interesting. It says that he will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the street. Well, we know that Jesus taught in public places, so it's not speaking about that. We know there was plenty of quarreling going on with him and the Pharisees. We just saw some. So it's not talking about that. But what it's talking about, it's not saying those things aren't going to happen. It's saying that he's not going to use them to be known. That he's not going to take that quarreling, that arguing, that debate, and become famous from it, right? And uh, using controversy to be known. That's kind of the idea of it. And we see a lot of that today. Just about every aspect of, of our society right now. If you can create controversy, you'll be known, right? You can take a second string bench warmer in the NFL create controversy, and he becomes a spokesman of Nike, right? You can take somebody who's got a one-hit wonder with very little talent, barely squeaked out one song, and with controversy, they'll become well-known. Everybody's buying their albums. Unfortunately, in politics, it's the same. You don't have to know what you're doing. Create controversy. And it's one of those things, and to be honest, I see it on both sides, it's about getting the sound bite rather than actually changing anything. You say a controversial enough statement and get that sound bite out there, man, maybe they'll vote for you next time. That is worldly. And that's why in Isaiah and why Matthew points to it, that's not Jesus. It isn't controversy over talent. It's that Jesus will be known by his love and his compassion. And he see, we see it over and over and over again. Uh, the scripture that's pointed to you from Isaiah points it out very clearly. Uh, in verse 20, he says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. The idea is that uh, a reed by the river is, is pretty flimsy. And if you fold it and break it, or if you fold it and bruise it, it doesn't take much more to just rip that leaf. And so Isaiah said that the Messiah would be one that when he finds somebody spiritually bruised, that's on the edge of breaking, he's not going to show up and break them. He's not going to heap weight upon their shoulders to crush them. When the fire that they had has been absolutely burnt down to nothing but smoldering ashes, smoking flax, he's not going to come along and quench it and put them out. He's going to come along and give them Life and life more abundantly. He's going to take that which is broken and smoldering and breathe new life upon it, right? That that is the Messiah that was spoken of, and it's the Lord that we serve, right? And again, it points back to what he said earlier, I desire mercy more than sacrifice. 
It isn't about give more, do more, become more. Be people that receive mercy from God, that we know we need mercy. See, the legalist doesn't know they need mercy. Again, conversations I've had in the past, people come to me and go, all you talk about is grace, 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 grace. All you talk about is legalism. (laughs) I'd rather talk about grace, right? I need grace. I need mercy. I need the love of God. And I want to be around people that know we need mercy. That we are continually seeking after God's mercy. Not to excuse sin, not to blow off something and go, well, I'll just get grace. That's somebody that doesn't understand grace at all. But to know that we are still sinners in need of mercy and grace. And that we would be those that show others mercy and grace. This is what God desires. And those are the people we want to be. Not known for controversy, not known for rules and laws and do's and don'ts. We want to be people known by the love of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your love, your mercy, your grace upon our lives. And may we never get tired of speaking of it and hearing of it and telling others of your grace and mercy and love. God, that it would be what marks our lives and and that we would be known as your people, your children, reflecting your goodness in this dark place. God, give us a heart for the lost. Give us a heart for the saved. Give us just your heart for people. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.